Uh, So the first reading is from Exodus uh, chapter 12, beginning at verse 1. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, This month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbour, having taken into account the number of people there are. You are to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. The animals you choose must be year-old males without defect, and you may take them from the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month, when all the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then they are Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. That same night, they are to eat the meat roasted over the fire, along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. Do not eat the meat raw or boiled in water, but roast it over a fire with all the head, legs and internal organs. Do not leave any of it till morning. If some is left till morning, you must burn it. This is how you are to eat it, with your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. Eat it in haste, it is the Lord's Passover. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the house where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. Second reading is from John chapter 6, beginning at verse 51. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Then the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus said to them, very truly I tell you, Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. For the flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in them. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna and died, but whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. And then the last reading is from 1 Corinthians chapter 10, beginning at verse 14. Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. I speak to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all share in the one loaf. Good morning, everyone. Good to see you. And um, we come to the end of our series on the sacraments. And the main idea that I've been trying to communicate is the classic definition of what a sacrament is. It's a physical and visible sign of of a spiritual and invisible grace. That's what communion and baptism do. 
But I've given lots of examples that this is not just something in the churchy or theological realm, but this can apply to many things in our common and everyday experience. Right? For one example, how does a young woman know that the guy really loves her? In human relationships, you can't open up someone's chest and look into their heart and see, is there love here? Okay, no. Love is invisible. So how does that young woman know the guy loves her? Well, she knows by looking at the flowers and the cards that he gave her. Right? In human relationships, invisible love is shared, it's conveyed through visible and physical things like flowers and cards and engagement rings. And so the big idea of this series has been that the sacraments, baptism and communion, they are not just symbolic things, which is what most churches today hold. I want to put to you the traditional and the classic view is that they actually do something. They convey God's grace to us. And the difference with baptism and communion to say flowers and rings and any other things is that these to convey God's grace to us. And they bridge the divide between the heavenly and the earthly, the visible and the invisible realm. And last week you heard that baptism marks the moment when you can say with absolute confidence, God has adopted me as his own. That's when your relationship changed from being a stranger to being his son and daughter. And that's because God really does use the water to convey his grace. And today we'll hear that every time when we gather together around the Lord's table for communion, God's grace is given to us in a new way. And we really are united with Jesus in heaven. Jesus gave us this food this meal as food for the journey, the journey or the pilgrimage from earth to heaven, from this temporary life to eternal life in the new heavens and the new earth. And here you might want to ask, why? Why did Jesus give us this food? And you know, for a long time, I had a very narrow view of what worship is. I thought that when we are in church, when we are singing, we are in worship. But when you're sitting and you hear the Bible read, or you're listening to the sermon, or you come forward to receive communion, worship somehow stops in that moment. But this way of thinking doesn't actually come from the scriptures. In God's relationship with humanity, food and eating have always played a very important role. And to give just a few small and famous examples, at the very start in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve received eternal life by eating from the tree of life. And their relationship to God was kept, either good or bad, in relation to them not eating from the tree of good and evil. In the story of Israel, which we heard in the first reading, the paramount example of when God freed them and adopted them as his own, it was determined by whether they ate or didn't eat the Passover lamb. 
And if we think about our future and at the end of Scripture, how all of history will end, we're told that heaven will be a massive feast. It will be the wedding banquet of the Lamb. And even if you know, you, you, you're not familiar with the biblical story and with eating as an act of worship, even just in our common everyday experience, we treat food as something significant. Most of life's important events involve food. At birthdays, we eat cake, and when you achieve a milestone like a graduation or a retirement, it usually is celebrated over a meal. And just suggest to, you know, the matriarch of the family, oh, for Christmas, why don't we not eat? And you would be accused of heresy. Jews only eat kosher and Muslims only eat halal. But even in our, you know, secular inner north bubble, we treat food as something special or even religious. I mean, how many celebrity chefs are there that we give our time and money and devotion to because they have the skill to turn ordinary food into something divine. How many cleansing diets are there? Juices that promise you quasi-spiritual benefits. And even how we talk about food, it suggests we, we give it moral and spiritual meaning. Cheating used to refer to the marriage bed, but now, all of a sudden, it's about eating a brownie on a day when you're not supposed to. So eating can be an act of worship just as much as singing or praying. And in the story of Scripture, we don't just see food as an act of worship. We see it as a sacrament. We see God work through food. And this is especially clear with the Passover lamb. God says to the Israelites, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over. And I want you now to imagine that very first night, that very first Passover. There are two Jews, and one of them says, I am freaking out. I am so worried for my firstborn son. I am so worried for my friends and my family, and also for the future of our people. Will God really deliver us from slavery? And the other one says, what's the big deal? Haven't you done all the preparations? I've listened to Moses' instructions. I've gotten the lamb. It's ready. I'm going to observe the Passover. Why are you so worried? And so we know how the story goes. That night, God's judgment fell on Egypt, and he passed through the land. And which of these two Jews was saved? Both. They were saved from death and rescued from slavery because of the blood of the lamb and of their eating of the Passover. Not on the basis of how strong their faith was, not on the basis of how confident they were in God or how much they believed in the symbol. The lamb worked like a sacrament. God worked through the eating, through the Passover lamb, and he conveyed life and freedom. 
and the primary agent was God and not the people. Most of you already know that Jesus instituted communion at a Passover meal. Although he ate with the disciples a Passover lamb on that, on that literal, literal last supper, he didn't tell his followers, he didn't tell the church to continue eating a lamb. He gave us bread and wine. And that's, of course, because Jesus is saying that he is the Passover lamb by whose blood we are saved. But just as God was active in the Passover lamb, and God was active in the death of Jesus, so he also is active whenever we gather for communion and we eat and drink bread and wine. It's not just a symbolic thing we do to demonstrate our faith. God actually works his grace in that moment. And this is confirmed by Jesus and by Paul. Jesus says in our second reading, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in them. Just as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. What Jesus is saying is that the eating and the drinking conveys union with him and eternal life. Now there is some debate about whether Jesus is talking about communion because John's gospel is the only one that doesn't mention the Last Supper. But it's impossible to hear his words without thinking of communion. And while there is a question of whether this applies to communion, his point that it gives you union with him and life with him, that's the exact same thing that Paul says, and Paul very clearly is talking about communion. In our second reading, Paul asks, is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all share the one loaf. The key word is participation. Other translations might say communion or sharing. And it's the idea of friendship. Or as much as I don't like the word because it's so Christian-y, the idea of fellowship. You know, whenever someone says, let's have a time of fellowship together, I kind of cringe because I imagine, you know, singing Kumbaya around the fire. Uh, but it's the idea of friendship and enjoying time in the company of others. Think about the last time you went for dinner with a group of friends or with a very close friend and you just had a wonderful time. Knowing others, being known by others, sharing in a meal together, that's one of life's great joys. And in those times, we can say that you're having communion with each other. And the food you're sharing is not just symbolic of your friendship. Your friendship happens and you're enjoying each other's company through the eating, through the sharing of a meal. And this is what St. Paul is saying. He says that whenever we share in the Lord's Supper, there is also this real union and friendship, but not with each other, also with Jesus. 
the one who died and rose again and now sits in heaven and one day will return. Through the eating and drinking, Jesus shares his love, his grace with us in a real way. It's a common union which gives us the word communion. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in them. And here I want to pause and ask, do you believe this? Or if you have been part of a church where the symbolic view was, was the main view, which I think is most churches today, I want to ask, are you ready to believe this? That when you come to communion, in the very moments that you eat and you drink, God comes to you and you commune, you enjoy friendship, you enjoy the company of Jesus in a special way. Now maybe this is a very big idea and some of you might say, okay, this is what the Bible says, this is what Jesus says and what Paul said, okay. But for me at the end of the day, what's the big deal? It's just a piece of bread. And you would be right if you said that, but you can say that about anything. Imagine your AFL team makes it to the grand final and you invite me along. We go to the MCG, 80,000 people, and your team kicks the final and winning goal, and I say, what's the big deal? It's just a piece of leather flying through two poles. And I would be right in saying that, because basically if you boil it down to the basics, that's what it is. How you look at communion and how you look at the footy Right, two very religious things. It's determined by your wider beliefs about the world. In my first sermon in this series, I said that your understanding of the sacraments is where all your beliefs about God and the world and the visible and the invisible realm and how they interact, that's where it all comes together. Do you really believe that the invisible God became flesh and blood in the person of Jesus? Do you believe that God made the world and that, this, that he can interact and use with the material world even things like water and bread and wine? Or do you have an assumption that the spiritual world is completely separate from the material world and they cannot interact in any way? How you answer these questions shapes what you believe about communion, what you believe happens in baptism. But Paul and the earliest followers of Jesus, they believed that God really became a human being and that the material world could convey invisible and spiritual realities. And while it might be hard to see how this is possible because scripture doesn't tell us the how, I think the best person to summarize how to approach it was the French reformer John Calvin who said, I rather experience it than understand it. I'll slowly wrap up now, but I want to finish by saying why this is important and why this matters. 
If communion is mainly just a symbolic remembrance that Jesus died, well, you can do that alone at home, you can do that wherever you want to, and you don't have to come to church for that. But if communion really unites you with Jesus, confirms your faith, and it's grace from God that you can see and you can taste and you can touch, that makes a big difference in the Christian life. And that's because, like I said with baptism last week, it grounds your faith and the work of God in something other than yourself. It makes God's activity in your life objective, independent of your own faith and how strong your faith is, which, let's all admit, it often isn't. If we go back to the two Jews that I mentioned on that first night of the Passover, I think we all go through life at different times where we can relate with either person. And I think when we are confident and we're not worried and we are assured, we can easily make God an extra. We can quickly treat church as an option. If life goes according to my plan and I feel like I'm in charge, well, I don't really need a confirmation of God's grace. But when life devastates you, when you have no illusions over who is in control of life and death, and when you are so overwhelmed by your own failures and your shortcomings, the sacrament will become a lifeline to you. In those times, you will skip brunch with friends and you will choose to come to church instead because you need that tangible promise that you don't save yourself and that God's love covers you and rests upon you regardless of how you perform. So whenever we come to communion today and into the future, carry the words of Jesus in your heart. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in them. We don't do communion because it's mainly about us remembering something or bringing something to God. Instead, we do it because God has said that in the eating and in the drinking, we encounter him in a special way. We come forward like poor beggars with empty hands and God fills them. He unites us to Jesus in a real way, as real as the bread you can taste and the wine you can drink. And this makes it really the bread of life, better than baker's delight or needful things up the street or any other bakery. Sure, the bread of those places might taste better than the communion bread, but those other places, they don't give you grace you can see. They don't offer you uh, the body of Christ. Only this bread can unite you with Jesus, give you eternal life, and promise you that in all your shortcomings and all the parts of yourself that you don't like, God still embraces you and claims you as his own. I'll finish again with the words of Paul and Jesus. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? 
Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in them. Amen. Amen.